Uh, I'm excited about today because we uh, begin a new series. And uh, if it's the first time that you're here today, if, if, if you chose our church today to be the place where you can have a relationship with Jesus, we are so excited that you chose today. Because today uh, we want to see Jesus in a different way. This series that we titled Worthy also kicks off our life group season. And as we do that, um, if you open your bulletin, you'll find that there is a study guide um, on, on the back. And in the front, it has the locations where during the week, the life groups will meet and go over the, the studies of uh, this series. So join the life group. Don't be a, a lonely person. There's no such a thing as lonely Christians. It's a relationship. So let's grow together. Now... Um, as we begin this series, I have to tell you something. Uh, my son Gino, uh, a week ago, uh, had a surgery on his knee. He tore his ACL and his meniscus a few months back, and he had surgery uh, uh, last week. And uh, as we've been taking care of him and uh, changing eyes and all this stuff that he needs to get done for his uh, recovery that will take him from now and, and uh, October. It's a nine-month process. We thought that everything was going to be okay and then uh, with the family. And then yesterday, Giovanni said that he had pain in his abdomen. So we ended up at the doctor, emergency room. And about midnight, he had an appendectomy. So we got home around 3 in the morning. So if I say something that does not make sense... Blame it on that. But I'll tell you something. Surgeries, like the knee and the appendix that was removed on my children, are necessary for the body to grow and recover and be what it's supposed to be. The book of Revelation is the intervention of God so that his people become what they're supposed to to be. So as we depart in the study of Revelation, specifically chapters 4 through 8 in this series, let's keep this in mind, that we are going to discover Jesus in a way that perhaps we've never seen him before in the book of Revelation. We are not going to interpret this book based on feelings. We are not going to interpret this book by taking events that are happening around us and try to fit them into the text, we're not going to do that. A lot of people do that. We're not. Our intention in this series is to look closely at the text and find the author's intention to extract an application that will be for us beneficially in a spiritual and practical way. So as we do that, Let's get to work. You can open your notes, get to the bulletin, and there are the notes that we'll use in this series. Or you can also open your Bible and follow along in uh, Revelation chapter 4. There's a couple of reasons why we give these notes out. And, uh, and, and the reason why we give these notes out in the bulletin is, one, because all of us will be on the same page. See, there's many versions of the Bible. There's many different translations. So as we 
all follow one along, we're all on the same page and we don't get confused with different wordings and stuff, especially when we're new to the scripture. The second reason why we use these notes, and there's some blanks that you feel, fill in as we go through the message, is because all of us learn in different ways. See, some of us, some of us learn just by, by listening. We're auditive learners. So we hear things and, and that's how we learn. But, but if, if you're a little younger, perhaps, you need to see stuff. You, you can't just learn to hear. In fact, when we drive, when we work out, when we uh, are doing something, is when we listen to stuff. We use the radio as we do something else. The listening is not the primary uh, sensor that we use for learning anymore. So, so when we see stuff and we write stuff and we hear stuff and we repeat stuff... We are engaging more senses, and that is how learning occurs in a better way. So, so follow along and, uh, the notes and open your Bible. Take some notes, and, uh, and, and hopefully in that way we'll, we can grow more together. Are you with me this morning? Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Let, let's look at the text. After this. Now, let's stop right there. What's this? After this. If you recall, if you recall, uh, last year we studied the, the seven churches, the seven letters that uh, John write these letters to these seven churches in the first three chapters of Revelation. Now, if you were not here then, I recommend that you go into our website as you go home and, and you can go to the series titled Loved. And in this series, we talk about all these uh, messages to the seven churches. So after these messages to the seven churches, John the Revelator says, I looked. And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. A door is standing open in heaven. Now this is quite interesting because in the last letter to the churches, the letter to the church of what? Laodicea. Okay, two people are awake today. Good. Laodicea. Jesus says, here I'm standing at the door and knocking, right? So first, the, the last letter to the church, there's a door that is locked. But now John, after these events of the churches, he sees a door that is open in heaven. And a voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. I will show you what must take place after this. So now John is picking up on the story of Revelation. And Revelation is it's quite an interesting book because the narrative is not like the Gospels. It's not like the historic books. It's a compilation of narratives describing situations, people, and events. But all together comes to a point that talks about the one same thing. Let me show it to you. See, think about a telescope. Think about a telescope. See, uh, I remember when I, was, when I was in college, there was a, a, a week or two where this famous comet, Haley Comet, remember that? You know, yeah, I don't know what I'm talking about. Okay, <laughs> Comet Haley only goes around the earth visibly every 76 years. So it just happened that while I was in college, and I was going to college in Mexico, in a, in a town that is kind of a, a small city, so there's not a lot of lights, we could actually see the comet. You could, like somebody painted it up on the sky. But see, it, it looked beautiful just like that. But when somebody shared with me a telescope, 
It just looked amazing. Amazing. Now, the book of Revelation is like this. The first segment shows us the whole picture. But then every story, every segment as it develops, focuses the telescope towards the end and you can see more detail and then the next one towards the end and you see more detail and then the next one towards the end and you see more detail until we get to the last one then we see all the detail that would happen at the end so the book of revelation is divided in these sections in this form theologians call it a chiastic structure chiastic come from the letter the greek letter he which is like an x so it says that it has extremes and they all meet in the center. That's what it comes from and what it means. So this is the structure of the book of Revelation. At the, at the ends, from, well, from the middle, let's go to the heart of the book. And the heart of the book is that place where everything comes together. And that is found in chapters 11 through 15. Now, the way it develops is that at the beginning... Verse 1 says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember that? This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what happens at the end, in the very last verse, John says, Lord Jesus, come. So in essence, this book has the intention, the author has the intention of showing Jesus in his interaction with his people. And along these interactions, several things occur. The first of the stories that we read and the one we've been talking about in the series Loved is the message to the seven churches. But because it's a chiastic structure, that means that at the end there is a parallel situation, a parallel narrative. And we see the New Jerusalem. Now notice what this means. In the seven churches, we see the faithful people of God in the Christian era, but at the end, we see the people of God with Jesus. In the second narrative of the book, we find the seven seals, and seals like stamps, Harry. And we see the seven seals, and the seven seals describe the one who is victorious. The parallel segment at the end of Revelation in the second half shows how Jesus wins over sin. In the next segment, we find that there, is, there are seven trumpets. And these seven trumpets describe what will happen to those who are not in Jesus' team. The parallel narrative shows the seven plagues. The seven plagues are the bad things that will happen to those who don't follow the Lamb. So this is, this is what is called a chiastic structure. Because right in the center... Is the description of people, of characters, on events that we know as the great controversy. The battle between good, better said, between God and evil. So, departing from this structure, this series is going to be based on this segment. On the seven seals. Now, in chapter 4, we find one theme. And one thing in particular. And that is the truth of the chapter. And the truth 
is that the center, the great controversy in the middle, points to the first segment of the book as things that happened during the Christian era. Starring from the book of Acts. But the second part shows what would happen in history at the end of time. Now, let me explain this to you. There are two terms that oftentimes people confuse. The end times and the end of time. The end times is what happened before Jesus comes. And the end of time is what happens right when Jesus comes. So, now that we understand the structure of the book of Revelation, let's move to the first truth in chapter 4. And that is that God has, is, and will always be on the throne. Verse 2, let's read it together. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a... Okay, I thought we were reading it together. Let's do this again. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. There are 62 references in the New Testament to the word throne. How many? 62. 47 of those references appear in the book of Revelation. But 14 of those references to throne appear in chapter 4. So that means that in chapter 4, the central theme is the throne. The throne is a place where someone in authority will sit. The throne is a place where someone in command appears. Now, the, the thing about this is that even though the throne is the center of chapter 4, John does not describe the throne. John does not say the throne looks like this or like that, like Ezekiel does with the vision of the throne. John does not describe the throne. But what John does it, is that he goes in an effort to describe the one who is sitting on the throne. That family teaches us a great and important lesson. In the book of Revelation, the what is not important is the who. And that should be in our life as well. See, we are oftentimes so focused on the what that we forget the who. And we fail. We fail miserably oftentimes when we talk about these kind of messages because we are so focused on the signs, on the meaning, on the beast, on that other thing. But we forget that those are just the signs are not the things. You see, the sign is not the thing. The sign is the thing that points to the thing. And oftentimes we are, oftentimes we are so encapsulated in the what that we forget the who. So the point of, of this chapter is to show us the who. Verse 3. And the one who sat on there, sat there, had the appearance of jasper and ruby, or it depends on the version really in carnelian, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Now, we, we can see here, family, that John has, has a challenging task. And his task is to describe who's sitting on the throne, but he appears not to be capable of describing him. But see, John does what all of us do. We talk about God and the framework of our own experience. 
And what John does as a well-trained Jew is that he uses the elements of the Old Testament to reflect on the appearance of this man, of this creature, on this individual sitting on the throne. And he goes to the Old Testament, specifically to the book of Exodus, to describe who this person sitting on the throne is like. And he uses stones. Stones that were used, in particularly, on the chestplate of the priest, of the high priest. So what John is saying first, family, is that this being sitting on the throne is not of this world has a divine characteristic, has a place of authority that is not authority earthly or government, but is authority that has to do with a relationship with God. So he uses these stones, not just because it reflects to the Old Testament high priest, but also because the stones is, are the most beautiful thing that he knows. Now he says also that there is a rainbow. And this rainbow around the throne, over the throne, is quite an interesting element, family. Because when John talks about the rainbow over the throne, automatically, if you, like John, were a Jew and understand the, 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 New, the Old Testament, the last time that we remember about the rainbow and God connecting with man was at the end of the flood. So this rainbow shows that there is a connection between, between the throne that he's seen and the relationship of God with his people. There is a relationship between this throne and the covenant of love. There is a relationship between this throne and the ability to create and destroy. There is a connection between the throne and the magnitude of the person who's sitting on it. Because it reaches from heaven to earth. But he moves to a description of what happens around the throne. Verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Let's stop right there for a second. In this verse, John is saying that the throne is not alone. The throne is surrounded. It's surrounded by two groups of creatures. The first one of these creatures are four creatures. Four creatures that are different. In fact, verse 4 and 6 describe them as creatures who have the appearances of animals. Of an ox, of an eagle, of a lion, and of a man. But also these creatures have a task. And the task of these creatures is to give honor to God. The second thing that happens here is that the, not only those creatures are in front of the throne, but there are also 24 elders. 24 elders. Now let's take a closer look at this. These living creatures, these creatures that appear here, they're not earthly, obviously. Because we don't see those kind of creatures here on earth. What's interesting about this is that John gives numbers. What does John give? 
Numbers. Numbers in the book of Revelation are very interesting. Because numbers are the introduction of the context of what he's going to talk about. Let me explain this to you. When he says that there are four creatures, that means that whatever these creatures are, their job is to connect with things on earth. In the book of Revelation, we see that there are the four winds, the four corners of the earth. And every time that there is going to be a connection to earth, there's a number four. So these creatures that are described as the spirit of God are the way that God has connected to humanity. And then he goes to the 24 elders. 24 elders. Now, and you would ask, well, where in the Bible says 24? And the Bible does not appear 24, but appears 12. And 12 is the totality of the people of God. Let me explain. 12 people, I mean 12 names, were the number of tribes in the Old Testament. Remember that? In the New Testament, we also have the number 12, referring to the people of God, the 12 disciples. So we have the number of the people of God in the Old Testament, and we have the number of the people of God in the New Testament. Now, what kind of people are they? No, they're 24 what? Elders, elders. So that means that these people have been around for a long time. So what he's saying here is that before the throne, in this scene that John is, is observing, there is the connection between God and man. And there's also the people of God from the ages being represented with these elders. Because they've been around for a long time. These represent the people of God through time. That means that God has always been there. Now what they do together, the creatures and, and the elders, is that they worship God. It continues saying that they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by you will their way created and have their being. So the first principle that we need to understand about this is that God has been on the throne all the time. This sin, family, is not a point in time. This sin is a reality of the presence of God and His authority. Are you with me? Now the second principle that I want to share with you is that whoever sits on the throne of your heart sets your future. Whoever sits on the throne of your heart sets your future. Verse number 4. Let's take a look at it. Surrounding the throne, there were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. So we are in the same scene. Now we are describing how these 24 elders look like. And it says, they were dressed in what? In white. And they had crowns. They had crowns. Now, this is quite interesting because he, in chapter 3 of Revelation, in verse 21, there is a promise that those who are victorious, they will sit on the throne with me, Jesus says. So the thrones are there. Now, the, the dressed in, being dressed in white, in chapter 3, verse 5, there in the same book of Revelation, says that who, 
to those who are victorious, I will give white garments and the crowns. In chapter 3, verse 11, also Revelation says, hold on, let no one may seize your crown. So what we find in here, family, is that these elders represent the people of God who have been victorious through the ages. Now, they represent the victory that only Jesus can give. Verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings of, uh, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass. Clear as crystal in the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and back. Now, remember what I told you before? What number represents earth? Four. Do you know what number represents God? No. No. Okay, now you're guessing. Three. Father. Son, Holy Spirit. In fact, in chapter 13, when we read Revelation chapter 13, when we get there in the future, we'll find that there is a false trinity that is trying to deceive. Because three is a number of God. Now, if you just woke up, pay attention to this if this is all, all you remember. When the number four and the number seven get together, they form number... Sorry, let me go back. When number four and number three get together, they for number seven. I told you I'm a little lack on sleep tonight. So number seven, when the number seven appears, family, that means that whatever has been described is a connection between heaven and earth. Let me, let me explain this to you. When God created heaven and earth, he blessed one day. What number was it? Seven. To remember that on that day there was going to be a connection between heaven and earth. The seven churches. Why do you think he chose seven? Because this is people of God, in, his people in connection with God. When God and man come together, the number seven will appear in the book of Revelation. So these spirits, these spirits are there, the seven spirits of God, although there's four creatures. It's kind of interesting, huh? The reason is because this spirit of God is the one that has always been interceding for humanity so that they could be victorious in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 7, Revelation 4. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face like a man. The four was like a flying eagle. Now, and right now our head is going and it's spinning in crazy places, in crazy ways, because how in the world is God represented by four animals? The, the thing that happens here is that John uses a traditional Jewish, Jewish scripture to represent and describe what he's seeing. In an ancient Jewish narrative, it is written this phrase lion 
is the most powerful among the wild animals. The eagle is the most powerful among the birds. The ox is the most powerful among the domesticated animals. And the man is the most powerful of them all. So the Jewish believe that this connection of these four represented the character of God. So when we hear John writing, when we read John writing, describing these this events, these creatures, we understand one thing. That what John is trying to say is how God connects to humanity. And the way he connects is that humanity, uh, as God intercedes in their behalf, is so that they can achieve and become the character of God that was lost in the garden. The promise to Adam when he was made was, actually it wasn't a promise, that was what happened? He said, let us make man. Okay, let's stop right there. Was God speaking in singular form or plural? Plural. Let us make man in our image. So most likely there, there was the, the three talking. So when man is being created, the purpose of man is to be like God. And remember when Satan came to Eve, he said, if you eat from the tree, you will certainly be like with God. And Eve goes, oh, yeah, cool. I, I would like that. But in reality, she forgot that she was already like God. Because she had been created in his image and in his likeness. So when Eve and Adam, because they did it together, ate from the tree, that image of God, the likeness of God, began to decay. So what God is trying to do from that moment until the moment when he returns is to restore the character of God in his people. Verse 8, each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is. And is to come. Now this is a crescendo. A crescendo of the past, holy. A crescendo of the present, holy. And a crescendo of the future. So, so notice what happened. Whoever sits on the throne of your heart, it's going to dictate your direction. For the victorious, Jesus is on the throne. So I would have to ask a preacher's question this morning. Who sits on the throne of your heart? In the book, Patriots and Prophets, page 107, paragraph 1 says this. When man, by his great wickedness, invites the divine judgments, the Savior interceding with the Father in his behalf points to the bow on the clouds, to the rainbow around the throne and above his own head as a token of the mercy of God towards the repentant sinner. How does that look like? When we are sinners, understand that we sinned and we ask Jesus 
for forgiveness, he brings us to that same throne where the Spirit of God moves, where the faithful of God are represented, and he intercedes in our behalf. This event in Revelation is not, like I said before, a point in time. It's a constant event that happens every time that a sinner acknowledges that their need of a Savior. So there is a promise in this chapter. And the promise, family, is that we might not be kings today, but a throne is ready for us tomorrow. In chapter 4 through 8, and, and as we discover in this series, we'll discover the challenges of those who are seeking to make Jesus the Lord of their lives. But also, we'll learn how we can become participants of the covenant of love that God is promised without rainbow. In verse 21, chapter 3, it says, The one who is victorious, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on the throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. That is the promise. And there's nothing, nothing that illustrates this promise better than the model that Jesus set for us and we call today the sanctuary. If you remember, when the people of Israel left Egypt, for after 350 years of being slaves, they were confused with their practical living. They were confused with their religion. They were confused with their faith. They were confused with their social interactions. They were confused with everything because all they knew when they were in Egypt for 350 years was the, the crack of the whip. So when they come out of Egypt and they are gathered at the feet uh, of Mount, at the foot of Mount Sinai, God speaks to Moses and tells them, Moses, I want you to give this to the people. These are, this is my covenant of love. We call them today the Ten Commandments. But you see, if that would have stopped there, if the command from God would have ended at the, at the commandments, then we would be missing a lot of the character of God. We would only know of a God that likes rules, but not a God that is about love. So God's message continues to Moses and he tells them to construct a system. A system that will represent the plan of salvation. And this system we know today, we understand it today as the sanctuary. And the reason why God gave the sanctuary to Moses and to the people at that particular moment was because they needed to understand that their covenant that he once had made with Abraham, now they were going to be the recipients of that covenant. And what God was saying is that as you understand this principle, you will not only be the recipients of my covenant, but anyone who calls upon my name. That is why when Jesus went to the cross, he says, here is the new covenant. And let me explain this to you. Because the sanctuary, represents the way of God to man and the way of man to God. You see, the sanctuary in the desert was this almost basketball court-sized place. And this place had, was divided in two parts. It was the atrium, and, and, and the whole atrium from left to right will show us the way of God to man. You see... Because on the left side of the sanctuary, there was a place that was called the Tent of the Covenant. And the Tent of the Covenant was divided 
in two. On one side, the smaller side, was called the Kodesh Kodashim, the most holy place. The other part was called the Kodesh, the holy place. And what happened in these places was that in the most holy place was what was understood as the most secret part of the connection between God and man. In that place, what was located, what we call today the Ark of the Covenant. Now you understand why it was a covenant. The name that was given to it. Because it was the promise of God to the people. So in this Ark of the Covenant, on top of it, was called the mercy seat. And you, re I, you remember seeing the movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Nobody could open that. Because in that place, on top of that mercy seat, between the two angels, was the Shekinah, the presence, the glory of God. And when that moved, the people moved. The camp was moved. Now, Dividing the most holy place from the holy place was the veil. The veil. And the veil was a curtain that prevented people from seeing the Ark of the Covenant. Because only the high priest on the day of the atonement was able to go inside and minister in behalf of the people. Now on the holy place were three things. The first thing was the bread, the table of the bread. And this table of the bread represented the, the provision of God to his people. And, and in fact, there were 12 stacks of, of bread because they were representing each one of the tribes that God will always provide for his people. The second thing that was there was the altar of the incense. And the third thing was the lamp, the menorah. That illuminated the place and with the oil would give aroma to the holy place. Next to it was the lavatory. And the last thing was the altar of the sacrifice. Now, the way that God came to man was like this. The Bible tells us that Jesus was sitting with the Father. He was in heaven. And the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus decided to become poor, left his riches to become one of us. The book of Hebrews tells us that the veil, that the veil represents the incarnation. When Jesus, God, decided to become man. When Jesus was born. He began to live a life of relationship with the Father. In fact, when he was tempted, the devil said, make these stones become bread. But Jesus said, man will not live with bread alone, but will live by what? The Word of God. He also, the Bible tells us in, in, in Revelation 5, and, and we'll get to that, that the incense represents the prayers of the saints. So Jesus not only lived a life where he was concentrated and focused on the scriptures, but also a life of prayer. In this life of prayer, the Bible tells us that early in the morning, he would walk away, a distance away from the disciples to be in communion with the Father in prayer. And the oil, 
and the lamb represented the guiding of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus lived for, for 33 years in, this, in the Word, in prayer, and guided by the Spirit. When he began his ministry, he was baptized. Remember that? By John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And when his ministry ended, ended because he became the sacrifice. That is the way that God comes to man. But the way that God, I mean the man goes to God is the opposite direction. Because see, the first thing that a sinner would see coming to the sanctuary was the altar of the sacrifice. And see, today, the first thing that we see when we come to God is the cross of Jesus. Because if it isn't for the cross, there would be no reason to be here. It is because of the cross that our sins can be forgiven. It is because of the cross that we can come to God. And once a sinner understands the value of the cross and the power of the salvation of Jesus through the cross, then once we understand that, then we become baptized. And once we become baptized, the promise is that with baptism, the Holy Spirit descends upon us. And that is when we became justified. This is the process of justification. I accept, I accept Jesus as my Savior. He did His part. I get baptized in His name. Now I'm justified. That is why when we baptize in the name of Jesus, we say for the remission of sins. The water has no power. It's Jesus who's done it already. And then we become part of a life of living by the scriptures, of prayer, and also guidance by the Spirit. This process, we call it sanctification. But the promise is that there's going to be one day that Jesus is coming back on the clouds of heaven. And when he comes on the clouds on heaven, the Bible says that every eye will see him. And those who believed in him, those who are victorious, those who trusted in Jesus, the promise in the Bible says, family, that we will see him as he is and we will be as he is. And that family is what we call glorification because this body of sin will be transformed and will be turned into a perfect body. All my imperfections, all my deficiencies, all the things that had kept me in this world marked by sin will be changed by a body that is going to be like it was intended to be in the garden when we were in the image and likeness of God. And that is how the one that sits on the throne become so essential for our lives today. Because whoever sits on the throne of your heart today dictates your direction. And I thank God that today we can tell Jesus, thank you for being our Lord.